If you could open up your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 3, that's where we're going to be at, our series in Mark, Mark chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a joy and a, and a privilege it is to be able to open your word, to be able to read your words. And we, we ask your Holy Spirit to, uh, uh, to help us understand them today, to help us think about how we may be able to apply your word to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, Mark chapter 3. We're going to be uh, in verses uh, 20 to 35. Uh, and it's a really interesting passage. And I've titled today's sermon, uh, Are You an Insider? Because I really think that's what Mark is doing here. Are you an insider with Jesus? And sometimes we have some uh, misconceptions about what that might mean. What does it mean to be an insider? Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? What, do, what does it look like? And Mark contrasts outsiders and insiders here. And it's, it's really interesting. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Uh, but to some level, we all kind of desire to be on the inside, right? We, it's kind of within us as humans to uh, want to be in the know or want to be a part of a group. Don't do this, but if you want to test this theory later when we're all out at the lake, just grab somebody and like whisper back and forth and kind of look at someone, you know? That will make them feel very uncomfortable. Please don't do that. Don't actually do that. But you guys know what I'm talking about, right? We have this desire to be on the inside. Um, it's really interesting. C.S. Lewis kind of talks about this desire also uh, in his essay on the inner circle. And uh, he applies it to uh, professional lives, but one of the things that he says is, you know, the desire may be neutral, but it's still dangerous. It's still dangerous. And why is it dangerous? Well, uh, the desire could come from a place of seeking satisfaction or approval or trying to find meaning or purpose in whatever group you desire to be a part of. And the problem with that is we know that any earthly thing will come up short of satisfying, of filling your need for, for approval. You won't be able to find true depth of, of meaning or purpose in any earthly thing. The only thing that can provide that is, is God. So your desire to be on the inside with Jesus, to be an insider, to be with Jesus, that's commendable. And we need to lean into that a little bit, and we're going to look at that today. Uh, as I was preparing, I, I thought of uh, the movie Meet the Parents. Anybody? Anybody see that movie? There's some, there's some hands. Okay, all right. I know, it's like 20 years old, but I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting old, so I'm not as relevant as I used to be. But uh, Meet the Parents, it's, it's this movie, uh, it's, it's a comedy, and Ben Stiller's in it. He's, he's got this character where he's, he's uh, going to marry this woman, and he just, he earnestly desires to the approval of her father. And he just tries really hard to seek his approval. Uh, and even her dad calls it the, the, the circle of trust. If he can get on the inside of the circle of trust. And of course, everything goes wrong because it's a movie and it's a comedy and it's hilarious. But you just find yourself pulling for this guy. You're like, come on. Like, he's trying to do everything right. Uh, I only bring this up, one, because I think the movie's funny, but two, because the idea of uh, desiring to be on the inside of a group is seen in 
lots of movies and literature, right? Um, so it, it's deep within our soul. And today we're going to talk about the, the one group that really matters, being an insider with God, being a part of the family of God. Because that's what we all truly desire. So we're going to talk about that. Are you an insider? How do you become an insider? Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 20 to 35 are going to discuss this. And as you look at this, um, you're going to, we're, we're going to go through kind of two phases. Okay, We're going to look at outsiders, and we're going to see the outsiders disregard Jesus' authority. And they fail to recognize his lordship. And you might think, based on looking at them, that they're an insider. But Mark points out for us that they're not. The second thing that we'll see is uh, that insiders, disciples, they do the will of God. And we'll talk a little bit about that and what that means in the context and how Mark uses that. And then hopefully a little bit of how we can apply that to our lives. So let's go ahead and uh, dive in. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Okay, so who's he talking about? They came home. He's talking about Jesus and the disciples. They came home. Where were they? Well, they went up the mountain, right? Uh, there was just a period uh, of time where Jesus was performing miracles and preaching, and the crowd pressed upon him, and he had to retreat. And then he gathered the 12 disciples that he chose together and appointed them as disciples. And then he names them. That's in the passage right before this. That's what we talked about last week. That happens right before this. And now Mark is like, okay, these disciples are appointed. What does it mean to be a disciple? That's what he's talking about here. So they come home. They're gathered again. The crowd is to such an extent that they can't eat. And when his own people heard of this, his own people there is referring to Jesus' family, when Jesus' family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now, a um, couple of literary things that, that Mark uses here to kind of drive home his point is he, he does what's called the Mark sandwich. I believe this is the first, I'm pretty sure this is the first time he uses that literary structure in his gospel, but he uses it throughout to try to point, flash neon signs to what his main purpose is. In, in a particular passage, okay? That right there, what I just read, verses 20 and 21, that's like the top slice of bread in the sandwich. Cool? We're going to eat this sandwich like top slice of bread, and then we're going to get to the middle, all right? We're not eating it all together because that would make sense, but, uh, but it's a passage. We can't really do that, okay? Uh, the next verses are the middle, okay? So, because it, it looks like it's just abruptly stopped. If you read it, right, uh, his, uh, his own people, his family heard of this. They went out to take custody of him or to seize him for they were saying he's lost his senses. And the scribes who came down, right? So th there's, there's a little bit of a break. That, that's, the, that's the inside of the sandwich. We're getting ready to start the inside of the sandwich. And then we're going to get to the bottom layer of the bread. That's a little bit important to understand how this literary structure goes together for us to see what's actually happening uh, here in this passage in the Gospel of Mark, okay? So the first thing, Outsiders disregard Jesus' authority and fail to recognize his lordship. His family, for the purposes of Mark here, are actually considered outsiders. Jesus' own family. Why do I say that? Well, look, 
Look at the language that's used here. When his own people, when his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, to seize him. That word throughout Mark is only ever used in the negative unless it's Jesus that's doing the seizing, okay? It's only ever negative. So his own family go out to seize him for they were saying he's lost his senses. He's out of his mind. He's crazy. They didn't even understand who Jesus was or his ministry on earth. They didn't get it, even though they were physically related to him, grew up with him. So you might think that his own family is on the inside, but for the purposes of Mark here, they're on the outside. It's really interesting. Okay, now we get into the the meat, or for those of you that like to put lettuce and stuff on your sandwich, we can get into that too, but the middle, all right? Uh, Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. So now you have religious leaders coming from Jerusalem. They're in ecclesiastical alignment, if you will. They go to the same church. You would think, surely experts in God's word. They go, they go to the same synagogues, you know. They wear the same kind of things. Surely they're insiders. But they're not. They're on the outside too. They don't recognize Jesus' authority or his earthly ministry either. In fact, they're ascribing the power that Jesus uses for the miracles that he's performed, which these miracles are a validation of who he is by the power of the Holy Spirit. They ascribe that power to Satan, not to the Holy Spirit. Look at how Jesus answers them. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Jesus starts calling out their logical inconsistencies. Guys, that that, that doesn't make any sense, right? If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus uses this imagery to point out the logical inconsistencies. He talks about binding the strong man. See, the idea is this. Satan is holding people captive. He's holding people captive in in lies, in demonic oppression. And Jesus is the stronger man that can actually bind Satan in order to free people. It gives gives the uh, illusion to Revelation when it talks about Satan being bound. That's the idea here in this imagery. And it's all pointing at the scribes, uh, the fallacies that they're using to try to refute what's actually happening in in Jesus' miracles. He continues in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven. Or sorry, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
Now, the first point of this sermon is about outsiders disregarding Jesus' authority and his lordship. But we need to talk about what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We can't read this passage and talk about how blaspheming the Holy Spirit is unforgivable and then just leave it at that. I, when I was a young Christian, I came across, uh, across this, and I, um, and I was like, oh man, what does that mean? And I, I tore through the Bible trying to find an answer, and I, and I read a ton. You know, I confused myself a little bit, and then I thought I figured it out, and then I was like, wait, no, that can't be right. And then, you know, I went back and forth, and years and years of study, I, I, I think I've arrived at a place where I understand it. I'm going to try to speed all that up and put it in like five to ten minutes for you, okay? Um, and if I don't do a good job of explaining this, well, sorry. <laughs> you can come to my house Tuesday night and, and ask me lots of questions, and we'll expand uh, upon that. But, um, okay, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to put together kind of a biblical study on this really quickly. And when you approach the Bible and you, and you, you find things that you don't understand, uh, you, you always need to approach the text the same way every time. Uh, you go through a, a period of observation, then interpretation, then correlation, and then application. Okay? If you skip right to application, you might, you might be off in the weeds doing something weird. You have to make sure you understand the text fully before you try to begin to apply it to your life, okay? So, uh, you observe what's in the text. Well, we've, we've kind of done that. Then you interpret it, all right? And then you have to correlate it across the Bible to make sure that it coincides with a biblical theology, okay? So when I say that, does, does Jesus ever mention blasphemy in the Holy Spirit anywhere else but this passage? We're going to look at that, okay? Do, do the uh, apostles mentioned it in, in the epistles. Is it mentioned later in the New Testament? Is it mentioned in the Old Testament? Uh, and then you begin to look at church history, right? What are the church, uh, the, the first, uh, you know, church fathers? Did they talk about it? Okay. So that's, that's the process that I've kind of gone through, and now, now all the results are coming. Okay. I, I compiled them, and here they come. Okay. Uh, when we look at blaspheming the Holy Spirit, in this context, Mark actually tells us why Jesus says it, okay? Verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit, that is, uh, that he has a demonic spirit, okay? So at least at a minimum, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is ascribing to Jesus the power of Satan because of the works that he's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? At a minimum, that's, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is to say Jesus isn't under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's under the power of Satan. But then we have to ask, is that the only thing it means? Is that the minimum? Because some people will say that. That is one view that, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, that, that when Jesus' earthly ministry was going on, he was performing miraculous signs to point to him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the, the Savior of the world, as the Son of God, and the people who were on earth at the time that ascribed the power of his miracles to Satan committed the unforgivable sin, okay? And that, that sin is only uh, possible to be committed when Jesus actually walked the earth. That's one view, okay? Now we need to go into our correlation a little bit. Uh, there's two other gospels. There's two other synoptic gospels, we call it, um, that actually mentioned this, okay? So we're going to go back a little bit. 
uh, and you can read it on your own. I'm, I'm just going to summarize, but uh, we're going to go back a little bit to Matthew chapter 12, okay? Matthew chapter 12. Jesus uh, also mentions that there is blaspheming the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He says this in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 12. And in this passage, it also has that uh, Beelzebub controversy where the, the religious leaders are saying, oh, he's casting out demons due to the power of Satan, okay? So from a context perspective, that is going on. But right before Jesus says, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Right before he says that, he says these words. Verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So in addition to this context, we see that uh, there is an idea of allegiance to Jesus, of being with Jesus that's involved here when Jesus talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, all right, we'll put that, kind of put that little piece to the puzzle to the side for a second. Luke also mentions this in Luke chapter 12. And uh, just, just to fast forward a little bit, the idea that uh, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan isn't in that context in Luke. Go read it for yourself. Um, I, I encourage you to do that. But Luke chapter 12 doesn't mention that. What it does mention is the idea that under persecution, when before people... Christians shouldn't deny Jesus. They should be able to confess Jesus. That is to profess his name, profess uh, who he is, faith in Jesus before people, even under persecution. That's the idea in Luke, okay? So, we kind of put that together, all right? So blaspheming the Holy Spirit has something to do with uh, ascribing... Um, ascribing Satan's power to Jesus instead of the Holy Spirit's power. It has to do with the idea of allegiance or being with Jesus, and it also has to kind of do with this idea a little bit of, of professing Christ and who he is. Well, later on in the epistles, uh, it looks like there might be a connection to apostasy, which is just the turning away. It, it's Christians who turn away from their faith. That's all apostasy is. Sometimes I use Weird words that I barely understand. Okay, but the turning away from the faith by Christians looks like it could be kind of related to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, just in the way that the language talks about it, but you never see those words, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, applied to it, okay? Um, you do see this uh, in, in the church fathers, uh, um, in, in some, some writings in the past. So John Calvin says this about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Uh, those who commit the unpardonable sin explains, uh, or he explains, uh, that with evil intention they resist God's truth, although by its brightness they are so touched that they cannot claim ignorance. It's interesting. We have to try to put all of this together, and uh, I think uh, Dr. Daryl Bach does, does a great job. He's, he's an amazing scholar, um, uh, New Testament uh, theologian, and what he says is this, trying to put it all together, he says this, blasphemy of the Spirit is not so much an act of rejection 
as it is a persistent and decisive rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. When a person obstinately rejects and fixedly refuses that message or evidence, that person is not forgiven. So when we put all all of it together, particularly Jesus' words in the Gospels, it seems to have something to do with an allegiance to Jesus. And we have to think about it. So the Holy Spirit, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to testify about who Jesus is, to convict people of sin, to regenerate their hearts and sanctify them. But a rejection of the Holy Spirit's work upon you then is tantamount to calling God a liar. Do you see that? If God the Spirit testifies, tells the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth, died on your behalf, so that by placing your faith in him, you may have everlasting life. If you deny all of that, then you're calling God a liar. You are blaspheming the Holy Spirit through that denial. You guys see that? Now we have to get to the part that's added in in what I read, where it talks about a persistent, persistent attitude of rejection of the Holy Spirit. Why do we say persistent? Because we have examples of people in the scriptures that denied who Jesus was, right? If, if it was a one-time thing uh, and you commit the unforgivable sin and now you can never be renewed to Christ, then Paul probably would not be an apostle. Do you guys remember Paul? When he was Saul and he was uh, on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, probably to kill them, right? But God changed his heart. Or, or what about Peter? What about Peter? Peter flat out denies Christ before people. In Luke, that, that is what Jesus refers to as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's tied there. But what happens to Peter? Peter is restored by Jesus. Even after he denies Jesus three times, Jesus restores him three times. And we know that Peter is an apostle. The rock upon which Jesus builds his church. So it can't be just a momentary thing. There has to be a, a, a level of uh, persistence. And uh, the scriptures talk about people who uh, persistently reject God, harden their hearts. And there's this idea of a hardening uh, that continues. And if that persistence stays then of course it can't be forgiven. And why can it not be forgiven? Because a person who uh, persistently has an attitude of rejection against the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they've rejected the only means by which God provides salvation. And that is through the grace of God by throwing your faith upon Jesus Christ. 
by believing that he is the Son of God. That he died for your sins. And he was buried. And he rose again. And is alive now. Amen? So, I went a little bit longer that time, but that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's uh, tied into uh, this section that's highlighting outsiders. Okay? Let's keep reading. Then his mother and his brothers, all right? So we've started the second, the bottom slice of bread in the sandwich, okay? Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So to be an insider, to be a disciple of Christ, you just have to do the will of God. Cool? Should I just exit the stage? We all, we all understand what that is? Just uh, do the will of God. It's that simple. Okay, preacher. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, okay, what is the will of God? That's a big question. And we're going to shrink it down to try to look at the way Mark uses it, the context that Mark is using it. To this point in his gospel, the will of God is related to the commission that Jesus gives to the disciples. And what is that commission to this point? You have to remember, Jesus came, right, preaching the good news. He called people, and what did he say to them? Follow me. Follow me. That's what he said, right? And it talks about how uh, people left their nets and they left their boats, right? And they followed after Jesus. That's the initial commission in the Gospel of Mark. So to some degree, uh, the will of God is to follow Jesus. You need to, you need to get on this road of discipleship, which can only be entered by placing your faith in Christ and choosing to follow him. Okay? But it's expanded upon just before this, when it says that Jesus calls the disciples to himself. In verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, it says, And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that they could send him out to preach. This is really interesting, but um, the, the word there for appointed is poieo, okay? I know you guys are probably like, I don't care, but it's, it's actually a little bit important, okay? Uh, it's the Greek word poieo. Um, it's not the normal word that would be translated appointed. It's not the normal word that, would, that Mark would have used there in Greek for appointed, okay? Poieo actually means to, to do or to make, Okay? So he made 12. He made 12 disciples. Why is it important? Because it's directly tied to verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother, my sister, and mother. That's the next time you actually see that word used at all. I really think Mark is using that word to try to connect this. That to, to be a disciple of Jesus means that you are to 
do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, the parallel there is to be with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Okay, to be with Jesus, to be sent by Jesus. There's this idea within Christian spirituality that, um, you know, we just need to like pray all the time and and, uh, well, we should pray without ceasing, by the way, that is in the Bible. But uh, uh, Christian spirituality is like this super, like, hyper-spiritual thing that, like, we're just, we're just filling up with the Spirit and, uh, you know, oh, I, I don't know, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it. But there's this idea that, like, we just get fed all the time, right? But Christian spirituality is tied to both being with Jesus, being fed, and being sent out. That is also a part of what it means to be a disciple. And we tend to lean in one direction or the other, and sometimes it changes. In my own life, it's changed. It, it, it goes back and forth. But it really should be a balance. And, and why do I say that? I, some people use uh, different analogies to how this should work out. I like to use the idea of breathing in and breathing out. Okay? So if we're just filling up on, on Jesus, if we're just being with him all the time, uh, that's like breathing in. Okay? So as an, as an experiment, I want you all to just take a big breath in, but don't breathe out. Just hold it. Please, okay, you can, you can breathe out now, because I don't want to try to explain why a whole bunch of people are passed out. But uh, it's impossible. It's not the way it's supposed to work, right? We have to breathe out. And that's the being sent. That's the aspect of being missional. Okay, that, that means uh, going out, proclaiming the good news about Christ. Yes, you all are supposed to preach the good news about Christ in your daily lives with the people you work with, with friends, with family. If you're so moved, maybe with the cashier, although kind of like uh, Joe's example uh, from last week or a couple weeks ago, maybe not all the same cashier like within a day, but you know, um, there is an aspect of breathing out of being a part of the mission of God that is core to our spirituality. That's what it means to be an insider, a disciple, is to do the will of God. And I, I'm submitting to you that Mark is, is using that language as an, as an extension of his appointment, in, uh, of Jesus' appointment of the, initial, of the disciples in verse 14. That there is an idea of being with Jesus and being sent out. It's expanded even more in Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew. It's probably just one or two pages uh, backwards. Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just coming to church, it's good, but, but that's not what it means to be a disciple. Remember, the, the religious leaders, they went to the same church as Jesus. The temple in Jerusalem. But they were on the outside because they didn't understand who Jesus was or what was going on. 
Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand what's going on? If you do, then you're commissioned to be with him and to be sent out by him. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean for us? Well, sometimes we like to focus on the being with him part, right? So uh, we're involved in our small groups. We read the word. We, um, we pray, you know, things like that. We do all these spiritual things, but then, but then we go live our real lives elsewhere. See what I'm saying? Some of us err on that side, and, that, and that's just breathing in and holding it in and not doing anything with it, all right? We don't want to do that. The other side is we get really involved in, like, we're serving all over the place, right? But we're never caring for our relationship with Jesus. We're never thinking about being with Jesus. So it, today, you need to think, like, am I, am I a little off balance? Am I doing one more than the other? Do I care about uh, my relationship with Jesus and uh, his ministry to people? Do I care about that? Is, is that involved in, in my walk as a disciple? That's, that's one of the questions that you need to ask yourself. And it's an amazing thing when you begin to allow the Holy Spirit to bring some of these things up within you. Because it'll move you in directions that, uh, well, that you wouldn't expect. That's for sure. So it's really important that we think about that. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be an insider? Remember, step one is getting on that road. If, if you're hearing my words today and you're like, man, I, I don't believe in Jesus. Please come talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. Most importantly, talk to God about that. That is step one. You have to be on the journey with Jesus. That's what discipleship is in the Gospel of Mark. It's outlined as a journey. And if you've done that, think about, are you spending time with him? Are you spending time with Jesus? Do you care about your relationship with him? And are you ministering to the needs of other people? Are you breathing out the grace that God has shown you upon other people, believers and unbelievers alike? Are you serving the body of Christ and are you meeting people's needs elsewhere? Are you involved in people's lives? You know, one of the things that um, I love about this church uh, is, is the community aspect. Uh, I actually, I really like hanging out with you guys. You know, we're about to go to the lake and have uh, uh, a time of fellowship and, and I expect that it's going to be joyful. There's going to be a lot of uh, fun and, and games, and, and people are going to be talking about some really amazing things. But I also know that there's some hard things going on in people's lives, and uh, the wonderful thing about this group is it, it seems to be effortless how much y'all get involved in each other's lives. And that's what the body of Christ should look like. And I think it's amazing. And as I was thinking through this idea of breathing in and breathing out in our church, I started thinking, you know, uh, 
we, we have two services really for, um, uh, for an important reason. Yes, it, it is true that if everybody showed up to both services and we tried to fit everybody in all at one time, I don't know if there would be a seat, right, sometimes. Uh, so, so that makes us think, okay, maybe we should do two services. But the, the reason to, do, to have two services is also so that you can uh, step into this role of discipleship on Sunday. You can breathe in and breathe out. You can be fed and you can serve. Attend a service and serve one service. That, that, that is an important idea that we try to infuse into the church. We don't want everybody serving every single service because then you're never being fed. And we don't want everybody just sitting in the sermon and then going home and not being a part of the body of Christ and, and helping people. We need to do both. Cool? Um, it, it never fails that whenever we step up here to preach, you know, we have, that, we have that clock going, and whenever we step up here to preach, it's almost like you have to, like, flick the lights and tell everyone to quiet down because the, everybody's just talking. Everybody wants to be a part of everyone's lives, and that's one of the things that I love about, uh, about Del Rio Bible Church. And, and I really think that's because in this church, we have this idea that we are a family. All of us. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says right here, right? For whoever does the will of God, for every, who, whoever is a disciple, that's his brother, his sister, and his mother. Um, when, when my wife was baptized, the church uh, where she was baptized said this really cool thing uh, to, to all the people after they were baptized. And, and it's simple, it's maybe a little cliche, but what they said was, welcome to your new family. There's an aspect of that truth that is present here. We're family. And, and I love that we're family. We celebrate things together, like birthdays and anniversaries. We also pray for one another and help out. We sharpen one another. I know several of you in here are taking really good notes, and you're probably going to uh, critique my sermon to me later this week. <laughs> but I, I, I look forward to it. I want to be uh, uh, sharpened by y'all. I love that we can gather together and be a community of believers that so loves Jesus that that overflows into our love for one another. That's the picture of the church. Amen? So, as we wrap it up, the question is, are you an insider? Are you a part of the family of God? Because the only way to do that is to do the will of God, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that can only be done by placing your faith upon him. John says it like this, chapter 6 of his gospel, verse 40. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Do you believe? 
Are you walking with Jesus? Are you a part of the community of believers? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We, th- we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on our behalf so that whosoever places their faith in him may have eternal life. Oh God, will you, will you help us to, to see that truth and to see that uh, to be your disciple means being with you. And being your disciple means being sent by you. God, will you help us live into that truth? Will you help us care about our relationship with you, but also our relationship with others? Will you help us overflow with such joy for who you are that that we can't resist telling the people around us what you've done for us? Oh God, will you do that this week? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.